Morning, everyone. Morning, Arlo. <laughs> I love it. It doesn't distract me. It doesn't distract me. I love hearing kids. It's awesome. Um, this morning, we are finally arriving at week eight of our series on the imperfect disciple. And so, if you are in life groups or you have picked up the book and the excellent study guide that goes with it, then you've been following along as we consider how we live and walk rightly and uh, even as we are still imperfect disciples. And just as an overview, you remember we talked about things as disciples, imperfect disciples, that part of our imperfection is that we are wounded by sin and yet we're called to be wounded healers. We are gathered together as imperfect disciples, and we form an imperfect bride, the church. But that imperfect bride is engaged to Jesus, and we must love the church as he loves her. Um, Because we're imperfect, we experience shame. But not all shame is the same. And as disciples, we learn to distinguish proper from improper shame and use proper shame for its intended purpose. All of these things and more we've learned as we've gone along this study of how do we follow Jesus as imperfect disciples. Now at the conclusion to a series on following, it seems appropriate to ask, where are we following Jesus to? What is the destination? We talked about how the verb follow implies a present and future tense. It's a process that we're in. It's a continuing action. That means we follow Jesus now, but following implies that we're going somewhere, that we're going into the future at the very least. So where is it that we're going? Following Jesus leads us somewhere. So this morning we're going to consider heaven and future grace. Why, on one hand, does the Bible talk so much about heaven? As you go through the New Testament, heaven is referred to a lot by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter, by John. They talk a lot about heaven in one sense. And then at the same time, they share very little about heaven. There is a whole lot about heaven we wish we knew that they just don't tell us. But heaven is prevalent throughout the New Testament. And so we have to ask ourselves, as disciples, what role should future reward and future grace have in our life as we follow now? Why is the New Testament talking about heaven so often? And as with everything that we've talked about in the life of a disciple, there's a way to think rightly about heaven and our future with God, and also a wrong way to think about heaven and our future with God. And if we get our thinking about heaven distorted, and it's easy to get our thinking about heaven distorted because we fill in so many blanks that the Bible leaves out, and we try to anticipate what heaven might look like based on maybe movies or books or what poets or people have written, And so we can get heaven wrong as well. But as disciples then, just like all the other topics, we need to get it right. What is the purpose of heaven, future grace, and future glory for us as disciples now in the present day? So where are we going? And I'll just open in prayer as we begin to unpack the word of God. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to look into your scripture now. And... When we look into your scripture, we need your Holy Spirit to illuminate what you would have us know. What is being said, what is being spoken by the author, by your Holy Spirit to us, 
in general to the church and then to us personally in our own life. Help us to open up our own hearts and our own life to the scrutiny of your word so that we can know how to walk rightly in the instruction you give us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's notable, I think, that the Gospels that are given to us emphasize this tension between following in the present and our desire to follow into the future. And and as you just skim through the Gospels, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you notice the prevalence of the verb follow and the number of calls to follow. And that's why we're talking about discipleship, because it's about following Jesus, the stress on following. You'll encounter verses like uh, John 1.43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Or Mark 1.17. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Or you have John 10.27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Matthew 9, 9, Jesus passed from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Or John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So it all makes sense. All through the Gospels, Jesus is calling the disciples. He's calling them to follow him. We're disciples, and so we are following But then just as the disciples think they're getting it, and they have the Messiah figured out, and they understand this following thing, Jesus says, very near the end of his ministry, in John 13, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then continuing in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. So you can imagine some confusion here from the disciples, right? It's like, Jesus, come on now. You said follow, 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 follow. And now we're just getting to the finish line and you say, you can't follow me. You can't follow me where I'm going now. We're done with the following for a little while, but you will follow afterwards. And this is the tension. It's interesting how Jesus like, springs it on the disciples. He's right up front with it. This is the tension you're going to live in, disciples. I've called you to follow me, but you can't follow me yet. And that's the tension we live in. We're following Jesus, but we're not with him yet. We're following Jesus, but he's gone ahead. And so are these disciples discouraged? Well, of course they are. They want to follow Jesus to the very end. Peter actually right here clues into what Jesus is saying. And he immediately says to Jesus, I am willing to die to follow you, Jesus. Peter knows what Jesus is talking about. But we know that that isn't going to happen yet for Peter. There is lots left for Peter to do before he follows Jesus in this final destination. There's a lot of imperfect disciple work for this particular imperfect disciple to do. And Jesus knows this is going to be discouraging for his disciples. Even as he says it, he knows you can't follow me here, and he knows they're going to be upset by this. And so he reframes his departing and their following in new terms of hope for them, in confidence and encouragement. And I can just imagine how tender his voice is when he sees that the disciples understand what he's saying. They get it now that he's going to die and they can't follow him yet. He sees they understand that he's talking about death, but he very tenderly says to them, 
following right after this in John 14, 1 to 4. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. So here Jesus sees the discouragement. He understands that he just told them they can't follow. They really want to follow. So he reframes this whole not yet following for them into encouragement. He says, you're my followers, and your following is going to lead someplace. Let me tell you about it. I'm going to give you a little hint of it to come. It's the Father's house. And there is a place where you're going to that is especially for you. There is a place prepared for you, set aside for you. It has, it has your nameplate on the door in my Father's house. And I don't want us to just rush past the implications of that. Jesus isn't just saying, I'm going to this amazing royal palace, and you guys can all come there as my guests, or hang out in the foyer. If you're American, maybe be the foyer. But he's not just saying, you, do, you know, I'm going to this palace. I'm going to my father's house, and someday you're going to come, and you're going to be guests there. You know, you're going to hang out in the palace with me. No, he says, I am going, and I'm making rooms for all of you in that place, in that house. I'm personally preparing them for you. Do you ever think of that? you ever think of that when you're just going through your day? That Jesus has a place in heaven specifically for you. It's there. It's waiting for you. It's not just a generic place. It's not just like, you know, the, the green room where the angels get ready to worship. It's not just some place where all the saints gather. It is a place that Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you and for you and for you and for you and for me. Maybe he's still preparing it. Can you imagine a place that Jesus has spent all this time preparing for us? And he's preparing it for his disciples. It's reserved for you in heaven. You have a place with Jesus. You remember when we talked about the immutable goodness of God back at Thanksgiving? He's good from eternity past to present to eternity future. You, Christian, have been in the mind of God since before the foundation of the world, and he has a place for you for eternity to come. And then Jesus goes on, like, if that's not encouraging enough for the disciples, he says, I'm going ahead, and you can't follow, but there is a place you're going, and I am preparing a place for you. There's a spot for you. But that's not enough. He goes on, and he says, why would I tell you that if it wasn't true? Why would I tell you that if it wasn't certain that you will be in those rooms that I prepare? And here's the second encouragement of heaven and future grace. It says in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. You see, Jesus also doesn't say, you know, I'm going to prepare a place, and if you are really good, faithful followers, you will maybe someday make it there. He says, I've prepared a place for you, and if I've prepared a place for you, I'm going to come and get you. And you're going to get there. There is no slip between now and future. God's got you there. And you think, Paul, you're overstating the security of that. I mean, he can't mean when he says that that he means me. He can't can't mean that I'm actually going to finish this race well and get that place. Is that really what he's saying? Well, Jesus 
says this sentence literally about 20 seconds after he told Peter that he would deny him three times. So here's Peter saying, I'm willing to die for you. Jesus says, no, Peter, you're actually going to deny me three times before the sun comes up. And then he turns around and says, I'm preparing a place for you, and I'm going to come back and get you. (laughs) To the denier, he says that. So you can sit there and you can think, oh, you know, Jesus hasn't really prepared a place for me, and I'm not sure I'm going to get there. No, if you trust in Christ, you will get there. Even if you deny him three times, he will get you there because he is faithful. And you think Peter didn't get that message loud and clear and then had it confirmed later in his walk with Jesus? This is what Peter writes decades later in his own letter to encourage his Christian friends who are going through the ups and downs of life like every Christian does, who are suffering, who are in tribulation, who need some hope of future grace. And I can't imagine that Peter is not looking back at this conversation. And this is what he writes. 1 Peter 1, 3-6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. See, Peter's just saying what Jesus said. There is a place for you, prepared, unspoiled, kept, and the power of God is guarding you to get to that place through faith. And it's going to be revealed in the last time. Even this, you can now as disciples and Christians rejoice, even though right now while we're following and not there yet, that's a future grace that's for us, we still rejoice even though we've been grieved by various trials. Like Peter gets it. He understands. God promised it. Jesus has done it. It will never fade. It will never perish. And God's power is guarding me to get there in this in-between following time that we are in, which does include suffering. It's God's power that guards me as I have faith and I trust in him for that salvation, that future grace that is coming. And so you and I rejoice because we have heaven waiting and it's secure and it's prepared for us and we are guarded to get there. Now I could talk here for a little while or for a long while, as you please, about that inheritance, about heaven. But if you're in a small group and you have your book, Mr. Wilson covers a great deal of heaven very well. And he's very helpful in helping disciples to frame heaven correctly in our minds and in our hearts as we walk with Jesus. And it's all encouragement as you read these chapters. It's new glorified bodies. It's no sickness. It's no death. More importantly, there's no temptation, no sin, no anger, no hatred, no antagonism, no pride, no belittling, no defensiveness, no shame. And even more importantly, as the book will emphasize, and we always should, most importantly, it's Jesus. It's a perfect encounter with Jesus that goes on and on and on and on forever. Let's let John's vision of heaven be the food for our souls this morning. 
In Revelation 22, 1 to 5, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Well, amen to that. We get the lamb. We get Jesus forever. That's heaven. That's heaven. That's where we're going. That's where we're following to a real place, a real reward, a real Jesus, and no disciple wants anything else. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a glass dimly, but then face to face. For now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That's heaven. That's the grace that's in our future. And I've been talking about future grace, and I should explain that, because it's all bound up in the idea of heaven, the idea that we're following Jesus in the present kingdom, we're following Jesus in the present here and now, but we're following into a future. And as disciples, we've been given this incredible picture of God's goodness towards us in the form of heaven for our encouragement, but we also should see that as disciples, our confidence not only lies in heaven, it doesn't only lie in the future, But also, our hope comes from looking backwards, looking at what God has done in the past. The Apostle Paul writes about this future grace and how disciples are to be hopeful in it in Romans chapter 8. He says in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's future grace. Graciously coming things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It's a rhetorical question. None of them will. None of, the, none of those things will separate us when we're in the power of God through Jesus Christ. And so in this part of Romans, Paul is tackling, just as Peter did, the reality of suffering in our present day following Jesus. He talks about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness. You could say poverty or danger or the sword. You could say violence. You know, Paul covers the spectrum of the ways that we as disciples following Jesus now can suffer in the world indirectly from its fallen nature, like distress and famine, or as a result of sinful people and sinful systems, whether it's poverty or danger, or even personal attacks. It's persecution or sword or tribulation. And so Paul is wrestling with this right now. He's tackling this, and he says, what hope do we as disciples have in the following of Jesus right now, today? Well, Paul's answer is the same as Peter's and Jesus's. Paul's answer is future grace. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Echoes of Jesus will be coming to bring us home. It's the power of God that guards us. It's future grace, future goodness we can expect from God. But even though Paul at this point could talk about heaven as the source of his confidence, 
Paul talked about heaven as much as anybody else does in the New Testament. But instead here, when talking about the hope that disciples should have in future grace, instead of looking forward, Paul looks backwards. Where else does a disciple get their confidence for following Jesus? Not just in the future hope of heaven, but in the past accomplishments of God in Christ. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, indeed interceding for us. And so when disciples are discouraged, when disciples are buffeted and banged up by suffering and trials, when we're wondering as we follow Jesus how our following is going to make it to the end, we put our confidence in God's future grace towards us in all three places. We look forward to heaven, as we've talked about, but we also look backward to God's accomplishment and understand that Jesus is at work even now in both of those things. When we look at the Old Testament, we find it's always been this way. If you go through the story of God's people, it's a a story of peaks and valleys, the people of Israel. It's ups and downs. It's victories and defeats. Just like in our own lives as disciples, Israel regularly found themselves stumbling in their efforts to follow God faithfully. And they are also beset by pagan nations around them, putting pressure on them, intent on distracting or defeating or discouraging them, just as we live our lives in a similar environment. And in almost every case of God's people wondering how they're going to make it into the future grace and the future promises of God, they remember or they are told, this is what God has done. They're told to look back on God's grace for confidence in his future grace. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, and and you'll hear the echoes of it even as I say it, because I know you're all faithfully reading your Old Testament and you love it. But you will hear this refrain over and over and over again. What is it? I am the Lord your God who led you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from Egypt. Or the people will say, you are the Lord our God who brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Or sometimes it's just phrased, Lord God of heaven, you who keep covenant with your people. So in the desert, in the promised land, in the time of judges, in the time of kings, in the time of exile, in the Psalms, in the prophets, over and over and over again, how do the people of God find hope in future grace? They look back. God, you did this. You did it. You rescued us before. You will rescue us again. You will show us future grace. David, Daniel, Nehemiah, Ezekiel, over and over again, they often get the whole nation to say it. You are faithful, God. You rescued us. You brought us out of captivity. Paul says it too. He says it this way. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's the same formula. God's faithfulness to us was proven 2,000 years ago on the cross of Christ. You have any question that God loves you? You just look at the cross. He did not do that vainly. 
The practical outworking for us today of God's past faithfulness and the confidence that we have in future grace is to enable us to press forward in our Christian life, even in suffering or trials or nakedness. Even when we stumble in sin, God has proven his faithfulness in past grace, most prominently the grace he's shown us in Jesus Christ on the cross. And God did not send Jesus to the cross for us in vain. Can you imagine God sending his own son to the cross for him to die and suffer for our sin and then say, ah, I'm not going to count it. It's not good enough. Of course he's not going to. If God sent his own son to the cross for you, you can be sure he will be faithful to his promise and carry you through to the end into his future grace and into heaven. He did not invite us to the banquet table by grace and then say, you work really hard to keep yourself there. He invited us to the table by grace, and he keeps us at the table by grace. Disciples wake up every morning knowing that they will reach the finish line, not because they work really hard to hang on, but because God's grace is past, present, and future. We hope in future grace, because God is all grace. Now, here are just a few ways that leaning into and really trusting in God's future grace can change a disciple's life. I'll give you three ways. If we believe that God will give us his future grace and is daily granting us his grace at exactly the right time, then as disciples, it helps us overcome impatience. We don't need to chafe and worry that things are not happening as fast or exactly the way we intend them to. That we are stuck in a season of life for too long or that God isn't going to come through for us. If we really trust in God's future grace and that his grace will come to us exactly as we need it at the exact right time, then we don't need to be impatient. And that's not to say that we're not pressing forward. Disciples are always seeking where God would call them and how God calls them to act. But we do so contentedly, walking each day rightly and uprightly. Jesus told his disciples, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Confidence in the perfect timing of God's future grace grants disciples contentment to say, this day is enough, and I will walk rightly today. And if I need something tomorrow, God's future grace will give it to me. If we don't have confidence in God's future grace, then we live in anxiety, wringing our hands in impatience, thinking, I'm not where God wants me to be yet, and I need to work really hard, or God's forgotten about me. Secondly, if we really grasp and confess that we need God's future grace to keep us from sin, or to cover over and redeem our sinful actions, then in the disciple's life it'll serve to defeat our pride and our self-righteousness, and increase our compassion for other sinners just like ourselves. A true understanding of God's future grace should prevent us from claiming any moral high ground over anybody else because except for the grace of God, there go I. And a week from now, there may you be. Or a month from now, or a year from now. It's only God's future grace as we truly understand it and not our righteousness, not our works, not because we're so clever or we're so good or we work so hard that keeps us in grace. It's God's future grace poured out to us that is constantly redeeming us from our sin. And that means there is no pride in any disciple who understands future grace. That the only thing that guarantees them still being a Christian next week is the fact that God continues to be graceful to them. That's why you're still a believer. That's why you're going to get to heaven. That's why you're going to finish the race. That's why it's going to be well done, good and faithful servant. It's because the grace of God 
now and in the future is always being poured out on you. And when you understand future grace, it destroys pride. You can't look down on anybody else or their actions because they have the grace of God and need the grace of God just as much as you do. And you understand that you are just as capable of falling into maybe even a deeper ditch of sin than they're in. Thirdly, if we really trust that God cares for us and that not a sparrow falls and he does not notice, that his future grace is always in action and we're worth far more than sparrows, then it aids us in putting aside our anxiety about future hardship and to live freely in present joy. It's not a hope that nothing bad will ever happen to us. Remember, Peter says, you will suffer for a time. Paul says, there's nakedness and poverty and sword. It's not that circumstances will never be bad. Rather, it is a confidence and a hope that whatever the circumstances, God is sovereign over it. God has not let any disaster or day fall upon you that he has not prepared you for. It's understanding that God is sovereign over every circumstance, that he has a leash on Satan and he has his hand upon you, and that whatever happens, whatever the outcome is, you are ultimately secure, whether it's in this life or the next. Because what is death except our introduction to Jesus and to eternity? And if you understand future grace as a disciple, all anxiety about the future disappears. You know, Paul... In Philippians, he's contemplating his future. He's been in ministry a long time. He's been thrown in jail. He's been beaten up. He's been left for dead. He's been shipwrecked. He's been all of these different things. And he's in jail again, and he's wondering what's going to happen to him. And, and he's actually thinking, there's, there's a point in Philippians, I think it's 3, I've forgotten the address now, but I think it's Philippians 3, where he basically says, you know, should, should, should I die or should I continue living? And he's like, I really want to die, you know. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. This dying thing sounds like a good deal to me. But then he says, but I know for you it's good if I live, because I have more imperfect discipleship work to do. i got more stuff to teach. The Holy Spirit has more things for me. And so Paul doesn't die right there. But he's not worried. He's not worried about death. Death is just an introduction to Jesus. And if we really trust, like Paul did, in future grace, then we have absolute confidence about the future, and nothing gives us anxiety. So future grace can give us, help us overcome impatience and give us contentment. Future base, grace and understanding it can destroy our pride and give us compassion for fellow sinners. Future grace and trusting in God's goodness towards us, regardless of circumstances, means that we can give up anxiety and uncertainty about the future, even unto death. When the Spirit inspired the gospel writers and Paul and Peter and John to write about heaven, they never wrote about it simply as a future condition we're waiting for. Heaven is not just this thing that, you know, Christians are just sort of sitting on our hands, you know, waiting to happen. The glimpses that were given of heaven and the guarantee of future grace that come alongside those glimpses are meant to have a practical impact on the life of a disciple now. We need to understand why is this in the scripture for us to know now while we're still following Jesus and he's gone on ahead. How do they help us today? Heaven is not simply Christian retirement, although it is rest. Heaven is certainly not a carrot that's dangled out in front of weary disciples to make them work harder to achieve it, although heaven is a reward. Heaven is the ultimate example of future grace. It is confidence and assurance that the God who has been gracious to us and has fulfilled every promise in the past will continue to be gracious and faithful into our future, even into eternity future. 
And a disciple who apprehends this, who grasps this, who who makes it functional in their life, will find new confidence, new peace, new assurance in their walk. They will find greater love and deeper love and affection and more profound worship and admiration and glory in the God who's given such lavish grace to sinners such as us. Not only to rescue us in the past, but to secure us in the present, to redeem us and to bring us home to glory. And it's all by God's grace. Jesus said, I'm going, disciples, even you, Peter, who's going to deny me. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you, and you're going to get there. What about you? Have you really meditated recently on God's grace towards you? The security that we have of heaven. The work of God in the past to bring you into relationship with him. Has that made itself real in your life, as it did for Paul and for Peter and for John, knowing God was always for them and never against them, strengthening their assurance. That's what heaven is for for a disciple. Heaven is to strengthen our assurance in God's goodness, his future grace. We get there by looking at heaven. We also get there by looking back at the past, specifically to the cross. God has been good, he is good, he will be good. There is future grace, there is future glory, and we are guaranteed to reach it. It is for present-day encouragement, and it's to function in the disciples' life so that we walk and we follow rightly today, not just sitting waiting for some you know, glorious future, but that it changes our life today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your past grace. And we often think of the cross. At this time of year, we think of Jesus coming in the incarnation. Hallelujah. And then we think of Easter and we think of the cross. Hallelujah. And sometimes we don't really know what to do with heaven and future grace. But it's there for hallelujah too. And so, Father, help us as disciples to apprehend heaven rightly, to apprehend your grace rightly that it can be functional in our life, that it can, it can change us. It can help us with our anxiety, with our pride, with our contentment, whatever it is that we struggle with, with our eyes on suffering and tribulation rather than on your security. Father, you give us all of these helps, all of these ways that we can follow you as disciples. And sometimes we just don't make use of them rightly. And so I thank you that today, as we conclude this series on discipleship, we can think about the reward to come. We can think about the rest to come. We can think about the ultimate example of your future grace, which is heaven. Not when we get all the stuff we want, but when we get Jesus, when we get you, when we get the Lamb. When all the temptation's gone, all the sin is gone, all the acrimony is gone, all the shame is gone. It's just us knowing Jesus fully as we are fully known. Father God, we thank you for that incredible grace towards sinners such as us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and join us.